you guys smell that? Yeah, that's Feedlot Fresh, all right. <laughs> right, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Today is going to be a uh, calving time podcast. So we are in January. Some of my clients already have 50 calves on the ground. Uh, the vast majority of my clientele is going to be calving in that March, April, May sort of season. But we have quite a few clients that are going ahead and they are calving. And I thought I would go through a bit of a calving time rundown. So essentially what I'm going to be doing is going rambling on about as much stuff as I can possibly think of when it comes to calving time management. It's going to be a lot of stuff. It's going to be a little bit all over the map, but hopefully I'll try to keep things as concise as possible. If you guys have any questions, always email me at Cody at CodyCrailman.com or send me a message on Instagram or Facebook. Those are kind of the top three where I can get back to you. If you have any other sort of questions, I can always do another podcast about something more specific. When I was thinking about doing these types of things, I was thinking about breaking them out into like kind of protocols, not like treatment protocols necessarily, but just like protocols and then standard operating procedures. So there's just way too much stuff to get into like the nitty gritty of how to like tube a calf or what I recommend for hygiene in a maternity pen in terms of like disinfectant or how to properly clean a syringe. Like there's just thousands and thousands of things to, to go through. That's why I have a job because I can talk about these random things at length with my clientele. But this one is just going to be as much as I can think of that is pertinent to like the time that the cow starts calving until like a day old. So that should take a little bit. Um, I just want to thank our sponsor for this podcast. I want to thank Tannis Ranches. Tannis Ranches is having an upcoming bull sale March 28th at 1 p.m. And you can check out all of their information on their Facebook page or on their website, TannisRanches.com. That's T-A-N-N-A-S Ranches.com. Tannis Ranches is a premier bull seller in Western Alberta. So if you're in the central Alberta, Alberta area in general, they're a great option if you're looking at some Black Angus genetics. So thank you very much, guys, for the podcast sponsorship today. Okay, let's get into it. So this one doesn't quite fit in anywhere, but I wanted to talk about it first. And that's kind of like the things you give to a calf when it's born in terms of, of drugs, okay? Now, I'm not making any protocol recommendations. I'm just going to talk about a little bit about some pet peeves that I have and also what some general recommendations would be depending on your specific situation. So for the most part, when a calf is born in my practice, just let's say good management, no issues to address, they actually get nothing. So no selenium, no AD&E, no vaccines, certainly no antibiotics, no anti-inflammatories, everything normal birth, they get nothing. 
Where I start to add things in is when we're dealing with an issue. So the, really the, the, the number one thing would be whether or not we're going to add a vaccine at birth. If we're adding a vaccine at birth, it usually means that we've had some pneumonia issues in those calves between sometime between birth and branding time. Branding time is typically six to eight weeks of age. And if we're dealing with pneumonia, so we'll have like a fibrinous pneumonia, usually started by a virus, but then uh, finished off or finishes the calf off with a bacterial infection. Very typical to exactly what we see in the feedlot uh, in an early place calf, this fibrinous pneumonia, this, this shipping fever pneumonia, the one that, that kills them quite quickly. If we're having issues with that in a um, cow-calf ranch before branding, certainly we need to look at management. What is their colostrum management? What is their barn management? How is ventilation? What is the temperature of the barn? All these management things. But if we if we are controlling for all of those and we need to vaccinate, then we'll we'll go ahead and we'll vaccinate at at 24 hours of age with a modified live viral vaccine that goes intranasally. Now, in most cases in calves, we cannot use an injectable vaccine because they have that, that maternal antibody interference. So they drink the colostrum and they absorb the antibodies for a variety of different viruses and bacteria. And if we vaccinate against uh, any one of those and the maternal antibody is circulating within that calf's blood system, it is not going to respond. Uh, its immune system is not developed to re even respond to that in the first place. And then on top of that, there will have you'll have that maternal interference, that mom's antibodies that the calf has absorbed will glob on onto those antigens that we've just injected into that calf and will neutralize that immune response, will neutralize that infection. So we need to rely on a different part of the immune system, and that's where the intranasals come in because they stimulate the mucosal immunity, a completely different part of the immune system as opposed to the systemic immune system. So we can provide uh, an intranasal dosage, so essentially two cc's of a vaccine squirted up the nose, specific vaccine, and that will confer um, a mucosal immune response. Essentially prime the immune system so if a virus particle or a bacteria landed on the, the inner nasal passage or anywhere within the upper respiratory tract, there's an immune system that is primed that can identify that as a foreign antigen and neutralize it before it ever causes a viremia or bacteremia or circulating infection. Uh, that, so that is the only time I'll recommend a vaccine for the most part. Um, and, and, and like I said, it will, will usually recommend the viral intranasal vaccine. If we control the viruses, if we control the viral infection, we can usually control the secondary bacterial invaders. Now, there is a bacterial intranasal vaccine that can be used, uh, but it's just used less commonly. I will recommend it in, say, high-value purebred producers where fibrinous pneumonia has been an issue because they want to try everything possible to control fibrinous pneumonia in their herd. So there is times where I will do both the intranasal modified live vaccine for viruses along with the intranasal uh, vaccine for bacteria, one in one nostril and one in the other. 
but usually in just places that have had problems in the past and also uh, higher value calves because that is an expensive vaccine combination too. The last time, or I guess the last situation where I'll ever recommend a vaccination is in some cases where we have a lot of clostridial issues in calves. Uh, clostridial are this the soil-borne bacteria. Now, I this is a systemic injection, and I don't recommend this very often, but this is a systemic injection where I will vaccinate them against seven or eight different clostridial pathogens in hopes that I will mount some sort of immune response to help prevent some issues that we're getting in, in calves pre-branding. So one of the most common problems that we would see uh, are things like like ulcers or uh, abomasal distension, these kind of bloaty calves, or even clostridial perfringens, diarrhea. So all of these different things caused by the, the clostridial organisms that can crop up as a problem in cow herds prior to branding time, prior to those calves being six to eight weeks when they're getting their first, typically their first set of vaccinations. So even in the face of maternal antibody, sometimes I will make a recommendation to vaccinate against those clostridials systemically with an injection. And then in terms of other things that I would get, give calves at birth, um, that, that would be besides colostrum, would be if we do have a diagnosis or remote clients in um, selenium deficient areas, so in Alberta, in the province that I'm in, traditionally cattle producers that are west of Highway 22, so this is like a western highway that runs north-south that runs into the foothills. So once you get up into the foothills, the soil can be selenium deficient or any producers that are north of Highway 16, which is a, another kind of corridor where the soil um, selenium capacity shifts as well north of Edmonton within my province. So northern Alberta and very western Alberta producers are at a higher risk for white muscle disease because of their, their selenium levels in their soil. So I do then make recommendations if we have issues uh, to, to vaccinate not vaccinate, sorry, to give supplemental selenium and ADNE to help prevent um, th these kind of weak calf syndromes or white muscle disease. Now, I believe that as producers get better and better at feeding mineral year-round to their cow herd, as opposed to just putting out trace salt blocks, like blue salt blocks, as they're getting more accustomed to a very robust mineral program, and they're feeding that year-round, feeding summer mineral in the summertime and winter mineral in the winter, and making sure that they are, are keeping adequate levels around that 100 grams per head per day, depending on the the type of mineral, I feel like a lot of the white muscle disease issues have really gone by the wayside through proper year-round supplemental feeding of mineral. Now, things that should absolutely never, been give, never be given to calves at birth are antibiotics. And I just cringe because every once in a while, I'll pick up a new client and we'll be talking about protocols and the uh, conversation turns to what things they've been given you know being have been given to their calves at birth 
and sometimes it's antibiotics given to every single calf born and it is not prudent it's not recommended it's not doing any good it's expensive it confers resistance it is just it's not something the industry needs to be doing management can control a lot of these diseases proper vaccination proper nutrition we don't need to be relying on on antibiotics at birth yeah um products like the macrolids like telathromycin being used um just not great or tetracyclines being used sometimes the the client education has been such where they don't even know that they're giving antibiotics at birth that this product is just part of their veterinarian's protocol and they think it's like some kind of immune booster or a vaccine in itself or an anti-inflammatory like it's i've heard it's been every way to sunday and there's just no room uh to to have a good justification for giving antibiotics to every calf at birth i can't think of a single recommendation um that 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 is appropriate okay Uh, the last one would be an anti-inflammatory and that would be typically like a product like meloxicam i think would be most common across the industry at least in canada where we're using a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory to control pain during a dystocia so controlling pain during a hard pull or an easy pull anytime we're manipulating that calf or if it's a hard birth uh, an anti-inflammatory at least in theory should be a good idea to help control pain and to get those baby calves feeling better uh, but that, um, you know, of course, is is up to your, your veterinarian's discretion. And also, uh, I wouldn't say that that application has been fully studied to, to, to really know exactly what you're doing to that calf's immune system. And is there anything that we're doing to, to suppress that? So just always something to keep in the back of your mind. I, I certainly uh, don't mind when producers are giving a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory at birth for a, for a heart pull. And there is some uh, some decent literature out there to support that that gets those calves um, up and and going a, a little bit quicker. So when we're getting close to calving time, one of the things that we send out to our clients is a calving supplies checklist. So this is part of our standard protocol. So all of this stuff that I'm talking about is in our protocol books. So we'll send out protocol books to our cow-calf clients. Um, and part of that is is including a calving supplies checklist. So just basically getting our producers organized really helps us because they have everything that they need if they're calling for a consult and and we know that they are stocked up in all of the appropriate equipment and supplies so there's no need to to worry about if they're running short on something or they don't have the right tool and it really saves us during you know it's five o'clock on a friday and uh if if our clientele is is ready and prepped for the calving season and we're not getting emergency calls to to drop off supplies and stuff like that for them and um hopefully it it helps our producers just be efficient and organized and and know exactly what they need so I'll run through the list uh, fairly quickly here, touch on a few things. So on the equipment side, uh, a bottle and nipple, calving chains and handles, a calf puller in good repair, 
AirTags and Applicator. AirTags is one that you know we we get orders from some of our clientele six eight weeks before calving season that they're getting custom ear tags made up so certainly they're they're putting some thought and insight into that elastrator rings and applicator if you're castrating at birth esophageal feeder bags you actually want two two bags one for colostrum slash milk and one for electrolytes. You do not want to use your tuber bag that you use for scouring calves and give electrolytes to. You don't want to then turn around and give that, um, fill that bag up with colostrum and give your newborn healthy calf a, a nice dose of coronavirus or rotavirus because that esophageal tube feeder was just down the throat of another calf. So, Hygiene and biosecurity is very important even on your own ranch when you're flipping back and forth between sick calves and non-sick calves. And I've even, this is anecdotal, but I've even found that when I'm reviewing health data and I see an increased incidence of, of stomatitis or necrotic laryngitis, so this is diphtheria as it's described in cattle and in baby calves, where it's an infection, a bacterial infection of the larynx or inside the mouth. When I talk about um, cleanliness of the esophageal tube feeder and they improve their hygienic standards for how they're cleaning off that ball on that esophageal tube feeder and that they're being more gentle when they're doing it, I feel like the incidence of that uh, necrotic laryngitis goes down because they're, they're tubing those calves with a clean tube and they're not contaminating that larynx and causing damage to that larynx. So just kind of an interesting note that I think there is some diseases that we can cause by being, uh, being dirty and being unhygienic when we're tubing calves. A head snare for obstetrical cases for those head back calvings. Uh, IV funnel kit, so that is that kind of bottle top funnel kit uh, that we use to put on a bottle of calcium or calcium magnesium to help with milk fever or grass tetany cases, so that's in the cow, not the calf. RFID tags and applicators, so in Canada all calves get uh, an RFID tag uh, for our traceability system. Stomach tube, speculum, and pump for cows. Uh, stainless steel bucket. I love my stainless steel bucket. For the first couple years in practice, I practiced with a plastic bucket and a stainless steel bucket. And the, the plastic bucket was my dirty um, ultrasound bucket. And the, the stainless steel was my, my surgical bucket. And I finally just got rid of my plastic bucket because the stainless steel bucket is so much easier to clean and sanitize. So now my dirty poop bucket is a stainless steel bucket. It, just because I can clean it a thousand times faster than I can a, an old ratty uh, plastic pail. You're going to want tag pens and you're going to want a thermometer. And we want to have a thermometer when we're checking for hypothermic calves and also calves that potentially have a fever. In terms of pharmaceuticals, uh, I won't go into like specific brand names or anything, but in general, we encourage our clients to have a small stock on hand of uh, several products so they are ready to go in case of emergen emergency situations. So a calcium product for milk fever, 
uh, dexamethasone, so a steroid, is, uh, is certainly needed for cases of anaphylaxis and uh, severe inflammation, say in like a case of femoral nerve or obturator nerve paralysis. Uh, we want some epinephrine for resuscitation of calves when those calves are not breathing properly. We have a small selection of broad-spectrum antibiotics in case we need to treat uh, bacterial infection. Oxytocin in the case of things like a, a uterine prolapse or failure of milk letdown. Some oral electrolytes when we have calves that are dehydrated or scouring. And then uh, an anti-inflammatory. You want to have a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory on hand as well. I would say across the board in Canada, um, in terms of, of active ingredient, meloxicam is probably the most common on the ranch. And then we also have medical supplies. So betadine scrub and solution. So this is just an iodine-based uh, soap and solution for uh, cleaning up the cow's back end prior to doing obstetrical examination. So we want that cow to be completely cleaned off before we go in. Latex gloves, long sleeve gloves as well. Uh, always being clean, going in. Um, I don't want to see producers doing vaginal exams on a cow uh, without wearing full gloves uh, because it's just not hygienic. Uh, lubrication, always important. The I was trying to think, could I do like a t-shirt or something about lube? Uh, I hate J-Lube, if you guys know about that powder lube. I much prefer obstetrical lube uh, to that. If you use J-Lube, that's the mixed up stuff and you fill a cow full of J-Lube, and then I have to do a C-section, and if I contaminate the abdomen with that lube, uh, it can cause a very severe peritonitis. You want a good selection of needles, um, you know, 14-gauge, 2-inch, and then some 16-gauge, 18-gauge, and 20-gauge, uh, depending on what you're going to be doing with those calves. And cows, um, you want some colostrum, so either uh, powder colostrum replacer or you're going to want some supplemental colostrum that you've collected on farm. Those are really the only two options, either colostrum that you've collected and, and stored yourself or from a packaged colostrum um, that, that the that a company has made is not appropriate to get colostrum from different sources, from different farms, from dairy, local dairy farms. Uh, that's not good biosecurity and you can bring a lot of diseases in and uh, dairy colostrum is just not as concentrated. So uh, most beef calves can't drink enough dairy colostrum in order for them to get an adequate amount of IgG uh, to, to have a, a good robust uh, passive immune system okay so when we are now in the throes of calving season um, we're just going to go through some basics in obstetrics so we have uh, three stages of labor we have stage one stage two and stage three so stage one is uh usually lasts between one and four hours but may last up to 24 hours and this is this kind of nesting behavior stage this is the beginning of of labor where the cow is restless we have a softening of the pelvic ligaments uh, dropping of the tail head 
And, and sometimes uh, what you'll notice is like a, just a tiny little kink in the cow's tail because she's feeling uncomfortable. So this is the, ne- the nesting behavior. I often joke, probably in poor taste, that this is like um, when Diana, my wife, was was having um, our kids. All of a sudden, she like had to clean the whole house and make like freezer meals and, and was in this like nesting behavior phase. Um, that's stage one of labor. Uh, stage two of labor is when that calf is actually entering into the pelvis. And this is when you're going to see the water bag. And this is when you're going to note the forced abdominal contractions. This typically lasts anywhere between 30 minutes and two hours uh, and ends with the expulsion of the calf. And then stage three is the expulsion of the placenta. So the placenta usually comes out uh, four hours later, but can take up to 24 hours um, for that to occur. Even after 24 hours, if your cow still has a retained placenta, it's not an issue until she actually is systemically ill. So if she has a fever, is off feed, that's when we address them um, with a standard treatment protocol. But uh, until that cow's sick, we don't do anything. We don't put boluses in. We don't treat her with antibiotics. We don't give her oxytocin. We just leave her until she's actually systemically ill. Then we can address her that way. So a calving rule of thumb when we're thinking about the the progress, um, when we're thinking about these, these stages of labor, um, if a cow is straining for more than one hour with no progress, assistance may be required. So that's when we go ahead. If you see, you know, a water bag for an hour, if you see her her straining for an hour, we want to go in and do a vaginal exam. Now, you're never going to cause harm if you're going in cleanly, if you're putting on gloves, uh, scrubbing her up, rinsing her off, and going in cleanly and doing a vaginal exam even if it's premature and you just find cervix and, and everything is fine, there there's absolutely no issue with doing a vaginal exam as long as you're going in clean. Now, you can do damage if you're being rough or if you're going in dirty, but if you're, if you're doing everything right, you're not going to cause any issue and it's not going to be any problem at all for you to do a vaginal exam. And I coach my clients through all the time on how to do a proper vaginal exam how to feel around there. Sometimes they have a phone in one hand and a cow in the other, and and you, you have no issue with that. So anytime that you have any cause for concern, you got the spidey sense, you're just not feeling it, it's been an hour and she's straining, just go in and do an exam. Or anytime that you feel that something is funky or off with a cow, uh, I think more often than not, you're, you're usually right that something's going on. Call your vet. They'll be able to walk you through it. If they can't figure it out with you, then that's why we uh, that's why we have a job, so we can come out and assess whether or not we need to help or not. Now, if you then go ahead and end up pulling a calf, um, always remember a few different things. So lube is your friend. You want to use generous amounts of lube. Once again, shy away from the J lube, just pump in lots of, of obstetrical lube, the pink lube, or there's this really nice clear lube that I use, uh, that's already mixed up. When we go in, we want to make sure that that cervix is, is dilated. So we're doing a vaginal exam. We're going to make sure that cervix is fully dilated. And then we're going to be looking for three things, essentially. We're going to be looking for two front feet and a head, or we're going to be looking for two hind feet and a tail. 
Now, how to tell if it's a front foot or a back foot, that's where we, we look at the, the joints. We feel the joints. So a front foot or a front limb, the, the fetlock joint, the joint right above the hoof, is going to bend in the same direction as the next joint above it, which is the knee. So you're going to have flexion in one direction and then flexion in the same direction, and that tells you it's a front foot. When it's a back limb, you're going to grab that hoof and you're going to bend that that fetlock down. It's going to bend in one direction. And when you go to bend the next joint above, if it bends in the opposite direction, that's going to be the hock. So then you know you have a back foot. So when we're hooking up our chains, um, you know, we correct the male presentation. And I could do a whole other podcast on correcting malposition. So let's say you fix the breech or you fix the leg back or the head back calving. We, we hook up the chains and, and we make sure we have those three things. We want two, foot in, two front feet and head or two hind feet and a tail. And then we pull. When you put calving chains on, you want to make sure you do it correctly. You want to make sure you have a half a half hitch around the cannon bone, or sorry, a full loop around the cannon bone, and then you're going to want a half hitch around the fetlock joint, right above where the dew claws are. Um, sorry, just below where the dew claws are. The the important part is that you have the top of your chain in between those two loops on the top part of the calf's leg. So if you envision, this is really hard to do in audio form, but if you envision the calf's front leg coming out, uh, the hooves are going to be pointing down, and you're going to have the top of that cannon bone facing up. That line between your first loop and mid-cannon and your second loop, that's the half hitch that's just below the dew claws, that line of chain that connects the two should be on the very top, should be facing upwards. And that's important because that's where there's going to be the most amount of force distribution along that arch. Now, if you have your, your calving chains on the opposite side, you're, you're actually going to be pulling upwards again against that that arc and you can cause uh, damage and you can cause broken legs so so far in my career pulling calves uh, when I replace my calving chains properly I've never had any broken leg or any suspect broken leg just taking the time so sometimes you aren't going to be able to put it on exactly properly but get that calf coming and then take a minute and reassess redo the chains and, and then you can safely pull that calf. When it comes to pulling the calf, make sure you're pulling the calf only when the cow pushes. So you're pulling that cow in, they're pulling that calf in sync with those forced abdominal contractions. So just wait and watch, and then you'll see your push and strain, and then you can say pull, and then you pull. Most cases, you should be able to pull that calf with force extraction if everything is going good with just two people. The, the force of, of two people on those calving chains should be all that's needed. If you go more than two people, uh, you can cause damage to that calf. Uh, when it comes to calf pullers, so like a, a manual calf puller, those calf pullers are so strong. Uh, those calf pullers can f- pull more than than the power of, of four big strong men. Uh, you can cause a lot of damage. So they are not meant to be used to their fullest capacity, to their fullest strength. They are way more powerful than than what should be allowed. But they're you know that just comes down to operator experience. 
So make sure when you're using the, the calf puller that you're using it very appropriately and very gently and you're an experienced operator. A rule of thumb that I always give myself and my clients is, is the rule of 30 minutes. So when you go in to address an obstetrical problem, an issue, a breach, a head back, a leg back, if you are not making progress within 30 minutes, you need to change your plan. So if you are a producer and you have tried 30 minutes in a cow and have not successfully had any sort of, of um, correction of that malpresentation, you've not made any progress, you need to call either a more experienced obstetrician, whether that's an uncle, a neighbor, whoever, or you need to call the veterinarian. And I give myself the same rule too, because you can very easily lose yourself in two hours of pulling a calf that you almost got it. You almost got it. And just, you know, we switch arms back and forth and two hours can go by so quickly. So I give myself the same rule. If I'm not making any progress within 30 minutes, I'm going to try something else. That might, that might mean I need a different tool. That might mean I am doing a C-section. It might mean that I'm, I'm calling a, a, another vet or, or another set of hands in to, to help me out. Now, as I've got to become a more experienced obstetrician, you know, I can, I can tell within three seconds whether or not it's going to be a c-section um you just you get that that sense as you become more and more experienced so once the calf is out um we'll go through the the newborn calf management so immediately after birth you want to remove all excess mucus from the muzzle from the nose so that's you know you can reach your hand in and pull some of that mucus out uh, that's where the straw up the nose comes in handy you can clear that airway so you grab a piece of straw cleaning that airway out uh, hopefully you tickle the nose enough you get a nice sort of head flip and a lot of snot and mucus and and uh, amniotic fluid comes flying out of that calf's mouth and nose but you do not want to swing a calf you don't want to hang a calf upside down this is a very antiquated technique it is not necessary it's not appropriate it's actually at the detriment of the calf because it makes it more difficult for that calf to breathe you have all that weight of the abomasum of that calf's intestines and stomach pushing down on its thorax on onto its lungs and it does not allow for adequate perfusion of oxygen and blood flow when you have all that pressure on the lungs um, a calf is not supposed to be swung around and thrown around and and hung upside down now some old timers will say well that's you know that's natural calf um, positioning uh, because the cow's standing and then the calf is coming out and then it's hanging there by its hips well that's true if it's a hip lock but it's not true in most calving situations most calving situations the cow's down she's laying down and then she pushes that calf out he's never hanging upside down okay so that's just not something I want to see. I especially don't want to see veterinarians do that. Swinging a calf or hanging a calf. You are going to see fluid coming out. It's This has actually been researched as to where this fluid is coming from. So you see fluid coming out of the nose and mouth when a calf's hanging upside down and you think that that is a, um, a good thing. 
uh, because because you see the fluid coming out, but it is not fluid coming from the respiratory tract. It is fluid coming from the abomasum. It's fluid coming from the stomach that's pouring out because that calf is swallowing fluid the whole time that it is in mom, and it his belly is full of abomasal or of of uh, amniotic fluid. So yeah, don't swing the calf. Which is better is to put it into the calf recovery position. So this is the calf up on its chest uh, in an upright position. You want to bring those back legs up as far forward towards that calf's ears as possible. The front legs tucked underneath. And that calf will, will stay on, in that chest down position. Uh, very well. And that is really good because it allows for perfusion of both sides of the lung. If you've taken any sort of respiratory physiology, you know that if you're laying on your side as a, as a a quadruped, so as a, as a cow, if you're laying on your side, um, that down lung does not have a proper ratio of oxygen like airflow and blood, that there is an adequate perfusion so you can decrease the total amount of oxygen that's being absorbed. And then if you flip that animal over onto the other side, to the other side of its chest, then the down lung has an, a, a poor time adequately perfusing the blood because the, the airway and the blood ratio changes. So the same thing applies when we have a calf that's being put in a recovery position. We want both the left side and the right side of the lung field to be in the ideal position of chest down, sternal, and bringing the legs up also opens up the airways uh, and stabilizes the calf so they'll stay in that position. So the calf recovery technique is one of my favorite things to do. When it comes to calf resuscitation, um, make sure that uh, we, we're doing a few different things. So, so let's say a calf comes out and he's just not responding, right? He's not responding, um, not taking big head flicks, not breathing. What do we do? It's a very kind of uh, scary situation. So the calf should be actively breathing within 30 seconds of, of delivery. There should be a very palpable and rhythmic heartbeat. Um, so if the calf is born with an irregular um, heartbeat or the absence of respiration, that's where we need to go into resuscitation mode. So we have that calf in the in the proper resuscitation technique, or sorry, positioning, so on its chest. And from there, that allows us to rub that calf vigorously all over. So we want to rub its chest vigorously. Uh, That's going to break down some of that mucus, allow us to get some of that mucus out when that calf starts coming around, uh, provide stimulation to the central nervous system. Uh, Pouring cold water over the head or into the ears of the calf can stimulate that respiratory system, that kind of shock to the system, to tell the brain, hey, it's time to wake up, shake our head, Uh, it's time to get going. Uh, I like to use the Jen Chung acupuncture technique. That's where I'll put a 22-gauge needle about um, 2 to 3 millimeters deep into the muzzle, um, right between the nostrils, so right in the middle of the nose. Uh, this has been proven to increase central nervous stimulation, uh, so so that calf has um, an increased desire to increase its heartbeat and increase its breathing patterns. And if all else fails, then I'll reach for uh, pharmaceutical intervention. So either using um, a couple different products. So, so Epiclor, um, a, a, an epinephrine, injectable epinephrine, 
can be used either injected into the calf's tongue or my favorite is into the trachea, so an intrathecal injection where I'm injecting it right into the, to the trachea through the neck. I like that because it's just really easy to, to grab onto and do and uh, absorbs really, really quickly. Uh, those calves uh, will get a more strong regular heartbeat and at times will start breathing. And then the doxapram is also this kind of central nervous um, stimulator. Uh, This one more stimulates the respiratory uh, drive of the calf as opposed to the heart rate. So doxapram is is another thing that, that we can lean on. So the only other thing I usually will add on top of that is supplemental oxygen. I now carry around a oxygen canister with me, just like a paramedic would, uh, providing supplemental oxygen and then also an endotracheal or a laryngeal uh, cuff. So the ability for me to establish an airway while out on calving call, like in my calving kit, I have an endotracheal tube. So if I have a calf that is non-responsive but has a good heartbeat, then I can go ahead and do uh, establish an airway with an endotracheal tube or this laryngeal cuff. It's essentially like an, laryn- or an ET tube but uh, it doesn't enter into the trachea. It is a cuff that goes over top of the larynx, and then you insufflate the cuff, and that establishes an airway. Um, It's a really handy tool to have. They're kind of hard to get, but but they are pretty neat. And then from there, you can provide breath. So I carry an Ambu bag, uh, essentially the same thing that a paramedic would carry, so I can provide breaths that way to the calf, and if all else fails, it's the old... Um, mouth-to-nose resuscitation where you um, provide that calf with supplemental oxygen breathing uh, by blowing in its nose. It's kind of a tricky thing to do on a wet, slimy calf. Uh, I don't know if I would do it justice in terms of describing it in podcast form, but essentially I just provide light pressure on an extended neck, uh, kind of mid-neck, so I'm closing off the esophagus but not collapsing the trachea with one hand. And then the other hand, I'm keeping one nostril closed and the calf's other and the calf's mouth closed. And then I'm breathing into one of the nostrils while the head and neck is extended. And I'm occluding the esophagus because you can just blow air into the calf's stomach uh, down the esophagus if you don't occlude it. So kind of a little bit of a tricky thing, a really neat thing for you to practice on a stillborn calf uh, for producers and veterinarians to try um, some resuscitation to try try endotracheal intubation to try uh, laryngeal cuff intubation. Um, all these things are really tricky to to practice on a uh, live calf that's dying and a lot easier to practice on a, a dead calf that was alive. So that's calf resuscitation. Once a calf is resuscitated, uh, then we're going to have to to go ahead and do a uh, vigor assessment. Essentially, we're going to see whether or not this calf needs any other help uh, getting through the first couple of hours of life. And the most important next thing, besides establishing this calf is breathing and has a heartbeat, is whether or not it's going to need supplemental colostrum. Now, there's a really great uh, set of work from uh, Dr. Elizabeth Homoroski. She is a veterinarian at my practice and also a board-certified uh, veterinarian. And this was part of her thesis, was coming up with an, a vigorous assessment score. 
It is a um, assessment score that essentially allows us to determine whether or not that calf needs colostrum based off of some simple parameters that we can determine at 10 minutes after birth. So at 10 minutes after birth, we place two fingers into the calf's mouth and rub the, the roof of its mouth, and we categorize whether or not its sucker reflex is weak or strong. So with weak, we have minimal jaw tone and a non-rhythmic sucking and a strong suckle reflex. We have good jaw tone and rhythmic suckling. For when we use this, then it allows us to determine whether or not the calf is at risk for failing to consume adequate amounts of colostrum by four hours of that calf's life. So the first thing that we do is we break those calves down into the calving ease. So was this calf unassisted? We did not have to help. Was it an easy pull or if it was a hard pull? So when we go to a hard pull and we do the suckle reflex assessment, if we have a a weak suckle reflex, that calf is at a very high risk for having failure of passive transfer. So we absolutely need to provide supplemental colostrum. On a hard pull, if there's a strong suckle reflex, we would put that calf in a moderate category and is, is at a moderate risk for having failure passive transfer. So with, with what the work that she found, I treat all hard pulls with a sup- supplemental colostrum. When it comes to an easy pull, if it's an easy pull and that calf has a weak suckle reflex, they're at a very high risk for failure passive transfer. And if it is a strong suckle reflex after an easy pull, then they're at a a moderate to low risk for failure of passive transfer. So in those cases, if it's a really strong, healthy, vigorous calf and a really easy pull, then I don't advocate for um, additional uh, colostrum unless the cow indicates otherwise. And then in an unassisted, if it is a weak suckle reflex, once again, the calf is a very high risk of, of having failure of passive transfer. And if it is a strong suckle reflex, then the calf is at a very low risk for failure of passive transfer. So to boil it all down, hard pulls and some easy pulls, they need to get supplemental colostrum regardless of if they have a strong uh, or weak suckle reflex. And any calf that has a, a weak suckle reflex, regardless of if it was unassisted all the way to a hard pull, if it has a weak suckle reflex at 10 minutes of age, it needs supplemental colostrum. When it comes to colostrum management, um, there's, there's a few considerations. So remember, beef cattle colostrum is much more concentrated than dairy colostrum. Or we need to be a little more specific in in what type of breed that we're dealing with. So some of the higher milking breeds, such as Semental, their colostrum uh, concentration may not be as good because those calves, those 120-pound calves, are going to suck back four liters of colostrum and they're going to get enough. Whereas a little tiny shorthorn calf or a little tiny Angus calf may not be able to, to down the four liters of that Semitol or Holstein colostrum. So so they at minimum need two liters from their dam. That's kind of the, the, the metric in beef cows. Two liters of fresh colostrum from their beef cow mother within the first four hours. So remember four by four. Um, on in, in the dairy, that's what we learned for liters in four hours and in beef calves, there's no way we're going to get four liters into them. So two liters by four hours. 
is is when we need it. Now, lots of people used to say you need to get that colostrum into those calves within the first 24 hours. That is true, but the, that gut wall in terms of absorbing those those antibodies starts closing down after four hours. So if we can get the first feeding of colostrum within the first four hours of birth, before that intestinal wall starts to close, that is going to be spectacular. If we can't get the full volume in um, after that first feeding, within that first four hours, the remainder should be consumed within eight hours. The other considerations that we're also going to have to have is that... Um, you know, cows that are in their third or fourth lactation, they typically have the highest quality of colostrum. And that um, cows that are um, older cows or heifers, um, they're, they're likely going to have less, better quality colostrum. So two liters is not, is not um, consistent across all cows. And the cow consideration is also important in that... Um, you know, a cow that has experienced a very difficult birth is more likely to, to miss mother and it's just really going to be harder for that calf to consume those two liters of good quality colostrum naturally. So we're going to have to provide supplemental colostrum. So two liters, good quality colostrum within the first four hours of birth and you guys will be golden. When it comes to, to picking a, a colostrum source... If you're going to use a donor cow from your own herd, uh, it's usually a good idea to freeze the colostrum in one liter bags from a donor cow uh, that is three to six years of age. That's from your own herd. That's a good donor cow. So three to six years old, she's going to be in the prime of her colostrum production. And uh, you can store that colostrum for up to a year. Make sure that when you're thawing that colostrum, you are going to be thawing it slowly in a warm water bath and to never microwave it. These are proteins, and if you if you microwave a protein, you're going to denature it, and it's not going to be as effective. And do not ever purchase colostrum from other operations, especially dairies. Not to throw the dairies under the bus, but the incidence of Yoni's disease and some other diseases uh, such as, as lymphoma or bovine leukosis virus are higher in dairies. This is just this is just a fact. So we want to decrease that risk as much as possible, and we also need to remember of course like i talked about before that holstein cows produce a very low quality colostrum due to severe dilution because they're heavy milkers my i guess the absolute favorite is just relying on commercial colostrum products we have some really good or, or at least one really good brand here in canada called the saskatoon colostrum company and uh it's, it's ran by two veterinarians. Uh, they were both uh, professors at my vet school, so I'm a little bit biased that way. But they do a great job in terms of following the science and doing proper vaccination of the donor herds and for testing and screening against pathogens. So, so they are really good products. Um, always remember to look at the bag and make sure we're looking at the, the, the grams of IgG. So this is the total amount of, of, of antibodies in that colostrum. 
at minimum for a replacer you want 100 grams of igg uh, and nothing less there are there are supplement products so if a calf got a, a belly full of colostrum from its mom and you want to add a supplement those supplement products are around 50 to 60 grams of igg whereas a full replacer has to be 100 gg igg 100 grams of igg or more uh, in a big calf the some of those calves could actually take two of those bags so so there's a lot of evidence out there showing that even 100 grams of igg is not enough in some some instances you'll you'll see the recommendation on the back of the bag based off of of what the calf's risk level is but uh yeah 150 grams of igg is is even even better and and indicated based off of the literature but it can be you know, hard to get that amount into the calf as well. So, so at least make sure they're using high quality uh, replacement colostrum. I have seen some replacement in quote products that have said that they have a hundred grams of colostrum in them. And then the rest is filler. That's just trying to trick you guys uh, because everybody knows this hundred gram number. It's hundred grams of IgG, not a hundred grams of colostrum. It's a hundred grams of IgG of pure bovine colostrum, no filler. Okay, method of feeding when it comes to feeding your colostrum. It's always preferable to get uh, the first feeding by bottle, uh, stimulate the natural suckle reflex uh, that ensures that the colostrum is shunted directly into the abomasum and that uh, potentially promotes quicker absorption. Um, bottle feeding also helps reduce aspiration pneumonia and is less stressful for the calf but tube feeding is acceptable uh, as an acceptable method when bottle feeding is not an option Um, and in those little calves it's usually best to split the feedings um, into smaller volumes you don't want to overfill those calves the last thing you want when you're esophageal tube feeding is to pull that tube out and have calves just spraying milk or colostrum out of their nose not a fun thing preventing failure passive transfer is by far the the most inexpensive management tool out there for controlling disease that is the start of all disease problems in a cow calf herd that is why you get joint ill that is why you get navel ill that is why you get uh, pneumonia problems scour problems if you have great colostrum management in your cow herd you are going to decrease so many of your issues in general okay we've got that calf alive to 24 hours and that is where I'm going to leave it there. Thank you again so much to our sponsor, Tannis Ranches. Tannis Ranches Bull Sale coming up March 28th at 1 p.m. at the ranch in Water Valley. Uh, check out their website, tannisranches.com, and Tannis Ranches on Facebook. Uh, T-A-N-N-A-S ranches Uh, they have great black Angus genetics and I appreciate their support on today's podcast and yeah that was a that was a that was a good one guys thanks for coming out please contact me if you have any questions concerns comments I'd love to hear from you okay take care bye